You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we'll be today. We looked at verses 1 and 2 last week. Um, We will continue working through chapter 5. We're going to be in uh, verses 3 through 6 today. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 and then we'll go through uh, verse 6 today. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. We began looking at this concept of imitating God last week. We talked about as his adopted children were to take on the characteristics and traits of our Heavenly Father. And specifically last week, we talked about how we're to walk in love by imitating our Father. Walking in love, remaining motivated to show love to others, not based on how they treat us, but instead on how we have been treated by our Heavenly Father, right? So we talked about uh, extending forgiveness, extending love, uh, based on the fact that we have been forgiven, that we have been loved. We talked about the sacrifice that Christ offered on our behalf to save us. We talked about fighting to love others by remembering that God has loved us um, and remembering that God, God's love exceeds any situation where he will ever ask us to love and forgive, right? The fact that he has extended love and forgiveness to us exceeds the hardest case where we would have to love and forgive somebody else. And so we can, we can fight to love others, fight to forgive others by remembering what God has done in us. Um, so I challenged you as application last week to keep remembering God's love for you, to spend time meditating upon that in his word, to see that as you read and study this overwhelming love that God has for us, and then to fight to love others by remembering that love that God has for you. Um, and choosing to love others not based on how they respond to your love for them, but because of what God has already given to us. We now transition from an attitude of love to an attitude of purity in verses 3 through 6. So our summary sentence for today, believers are called to imitate God like a child imitating a father by walking in purity and are to avoid immorality even being mentioned with their name by reflecting upon the coming judgment on that behavior. Believers are called to imitate God like a child imitating a father by walking in purity and are to avoid immorality even being mentioned with their name by reflecting upon the coming judgment on that behavior. For our kids, Christians are to always be separated from sinful behavior. Always to be separated from sinful behavior. You'll notice that Paul moves from dealing with self-sacrifice, which he had just talked about in verse 2, the idea that Christ gave of himself for us, We talked last week about how we're to give of ourselves to others. He moves from self-sacrifice to self-indulgence now, which would be the opposite of what we're called to be in verse 2. He's telling us, be this way in verse 2, don't be this way that we see in verse 3. He's moving from how we express genuine love to others to talking about how we should avoid this sexual lust that can so oftentimes be prevalent amongst those around us. 
This idea of purity that he's talking about here, it would be the control and expression of our impulses and desires in accordance with the law and purposes of God, right? So we take what we know about our impulses and desires that we have, and we, we funnel those through what God's word says we're allowed to do with those things, right? God has created us with desires, created us with impulses, created us with passions, and then he's also given us very clear guidance and instruction about how we're to express those things, right? And so we express those things in accordance with his word. And so purity is taking those desires, not just acting on them however we wish to do, but instead aligning them with God's purposes. You'll notice that as he reveals these ideas and attitudes about sexual immorality, he very quickly introduces the concept of coveting as another sin that's to be avoided. I think it helps us to see that both are tied in together. Sexual sin and coveting go hand in hand. They are directly related. Uh, There's also this concept of being thankful that's mentioned in verse 4. Instead of being this way, we're to be uh, filled with thanksgiving. So I put in my notes, sexual sin and coveting are directly related. The level of contentment with God will impact our handling of those desires. Our level of, of contentment with God will impact our handling of our desires. Think about what Exodus 20 talks about. This is where uh, the Ten Commandments are found. And uh, the Ten Commandments begin with a message about how we're to view God and how we're to worship God and how we're to put Him first. It then proceeds to work through different things that we're to do, not to do. And in verse 20, or actually in verse 17, Uh, It talks about the the concept of coveting, right? It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. We're not to covet things that don't belong to us. We're not to, to desire things that we don't have access to. And he even throws in this idea of desiring a relationship with the opposite sex that is not available to you. We don't covet that. We don't desire that. We don't, we don't long for that. Coveting is desiring what we do not have access to. And God's been very clear in Scripture. Ways that we have access and ways that we don't have access to expressing the desires and impulses that he has created us with. What we find here in Ephesians 5 is that there is a call for us to be totally removed from this type of sinful behavior, the the wrongful expression of these desires. Meaning that not only are we not to act on these desires in a sinful way, we're not to be associated with the acting of these sinful desires in the appropriate way. Right? We're we're to have nothing to do with it. We're to we're not to be aligned with it or associated with it whatsoever. We don't do it, we don't think about it, we don't joke about it. It kind of resonates with what uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount. The idea that it's not just about not acting on our desires, it's that we don't even have thoughts about acting on those desires, right? Jesus elevates the standard. You've heard that you shall not commit adultery, uh, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't even think lustfully, right? You shouldn't even long lustfully for something that doesn't belong to you. I was thinking about just kind of how this passage plays out, the idea of sexual immorality, the idea of not uh, having filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, and then it points towards this coming judgment upon this behavior, right? We don't joke about sin. We don't laugh about sin. We don't take sin lightly. We take God's judgment seriously. 
And we don't even associate with this type of sinful behavior. And my mind was drawn to um, the, the, the story of Lot, right? So you go back to Genesis chapter 19, and you're reading about Lot, and Lot put himself and his family in harm's way, I think, by moving to, to, to Sodom. And while we don't have any indication that Lot was necessarily guilty of acting on the sins that were available to him in that city. Remember, we talked in the New Testament, he's considered a righteous individual. Um, but he certainly is associated with the things happening in that city, right? Uh, he doesn't just relocate and live there. He becomes a leader in that community. And what's interesting is that in this passage, we're told not to joke about sin. But if you go to Genesis chapter 19, look what happens when... Um, He's trying to warn his family in response to the two angels coming to visit him to talk about the looming destruction on the city. It says, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. Right? He comes with this message that we see in Ephesians chapter 5. God is bringing his wrath. God is bringing his judgment upon the behavior of the city. But look what it says at the end of verse 14. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Right? It's, the, it's the opposite of what we're talking about here in Ephesians 5. Hey, don't joke about sinful behavior be very serious about it because of the looming judgment. You go back to Lot, Lot is, is being accused of joking about God's judgment. Why? Because he's really taken sin so lightly. Whether he's engaged in it or not, he has certainly not spoken against it or taken a stand against it to where anybody would take him serious when he tries to warn about the coming judgment. Paul would tell us here in Ephesians 5 to be very intentional about how we separate ourselves from sin, not just uh, avoiding the act itself, but even the association with it in light of the fact that God's judgment is coming, in light of the fact that those who engage in this type of behavior don't inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. You know, critics will come at, at passages like this and talk about how certain sins are being elevated above others uh, when you talk about sexually immoral people not inheriting the kingdom of God. Now, we'll talk in a, in a little bit other passages that list off categories of sins. And if you're in this category of people doing these type of things, you're not on your way to heaven. You're not on your way to eternity with Christ. Instead, you're on your way to uh, eternal condemnation. Um, but I think that in pretty much all these lists that you find in Scripture, there's the intermingling of other types of sins, but sexual sins are typically found in those lists because I think Romans chapter 1 reminds us that really sexual sin is a worship problem, right? When we deviate from God's instructions about life and the ways that he's created life and the ways that he's called us to worship him over all things, when we deviate that from that and choose other things, because you'll also find in the list not only sexual sins, but the idea of coveting and greed and stealing. There's really an attitude of discontentment that we find there. This attitude of coveting, being discontent with what our creator has given us, and longing to satisfy our desires outside of his parameters. And so certainly these sins are very serious because really what they reflect is a worship problem. 
We're not worshiping the one true God. We're worshiping the things that he's created. We're guilty of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, where we exchange the glory of the creator for the things that he's created. So there's certainly serious sins. And we'll talk here shortly about how we're to process through, okay, what, what, what happens if I'm guilty of any of this? Does it, does it automatically mean that I need to, to get saved, that I haven't been saved? How should we process through that? So we'll work through that as we go through the text. So let's start with number one, uh, verse three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So number one, we are to avoid any association with evil to avoid accusations. We are to avoid association with evil, any type of evil, to avoid accusations. He says these things shouldn't be a part of who we are, and they shouldn't even be named as a possibility amongst who we are. The truth for us to really consider here is that a believer should be known for a clear and distinct separation from sin. I think Paul reminds us of that by the end word that he chooses for verse 3 by reminding us that we are saints. We're saints. We are set apart ones, right? We're set apart from sin. We are set apart from the way that the world lives. We're set apart from the things of this world. We are, we are to be different. We're to be different. Not to earn God's favor, remember. We are already adopted children. We are already considered saints, and now we are to live saintly. We're to be different. We're to be separate. We're to be non-associated with the things that are mentioned here. A believer should be known for the clear and distinct separation from sin. So I want to give you, each under each point today, um, and as always, like our main outline are always very application-driven, I'm going to give you some questions to consider uh, to go along with that today. So number one, do you consider who and what are proper for a saint to associate with? Do you consider who and what are proper for a saint to associate with? It tells us that these things must not even be named amongst us as is proper among saints. The idea being that there are proper things for a saint to be associated with and improper things for a saint to be associated with. Do you consider the who and the what that are appropriate and proper for a saint to associate with? So what I mean by that is, are you, are you kind of filtering through the type of people that you spend time with, the places that you go, and the things that are occurring in those places as being proper for a saint? Whether you're engaging in the sinful activity or not, and this is super relevant for our students that are in here today, super relevant for our students, to really filter through and think through who are your friends, what are the reputation that those friends have, realizing that as you befriend them, not just as a means of serving them, loving them, and calling them to Christ, but if they're part of your, like if they're your inner circle, you're part of their inner circle, like you are, you are in this group of friends, think about what that potentially associates you with, whether you engage in it or not, right? This isn't just telling us don't be guilty of doing these type of things. It's telling us not to even have it named amongst us, Right? Whether it's right or wrong, we judge people sometimes based on who they spend time with because we know some things that certain people do. And so we automatically assume if people are running with those people, they're probably guilty of the same things. And I hear this all the time from teachers at Trinity, right? If you're a student that's hanging out with a certain group of students, you're oftentimes lumped in with the behavior that comes out of that group, whether you're ever a part of it or not. 
whether you're ever a part of it or not. And again, whether it's right or wrong for us to judge in such a way, what we do know is that Paul is saying people judge this type of way and you need to not even have it named amongst you. Like stay away from it, stay clear from it so that it can't even be brought about with your name. There ought to be a healthy ignorance amongst saints about the things of this world. There ought to be a healthy ignorance amongst saints about the things of this world. Listen to what God says in the Old Testament about the level of knowledge he wants his people to have about the practices of the lost world. In Exodus 23, 13. Pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. God's bringing his people into the promised land and he says, I don't even want you talking about the other gods. I don't even want you talking about who they are and, and how they were worshipped. Like, I don't, even want to, I don't even want these names of these gods mentioned on your lips. Deuteronomy chapter 12, he carries that, out, that idea out further. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 30. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispose, and you dispose, uh, dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. And that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. What's he saying? He says, I don't want you to even be aware of the things that they were doing. I don't even want you to be aware of the sinful practices that they had. I don't want it to tempt you to engage in it as well. God's saying, I'm okay with you being ignorant about it. I'm okay with you being unknowledgeable about it. I'm okay with you not knowing. And for the, for the sake of who's in here, I won't go into details, but I remember in, I was a senior in high school, and I was, um, there were some people that came into our youth group that were kind of new to the group, um, and I started spending some time with some of them outside of church and found myself in a very secular setting one time. And I'm sitting around having conversation that I had never engaged in before. Um, and there were things that were being asked of me. Hey, do you know about this? Have you participated in this? And I'm thinking, what in the world are they talking about? Like, like I have no knowledge of this. right? And I remember feeling like a fool because I didn't. And looking back on it years later, I'm so thankful that the decisions that my parents made had protected me all the way up to that point. You know, and at some point I was going to be exposed to things. It's, it's inevitable, probably. But I was so thankful in that point now, looking back, that I was ignorant. I, I didn't know. I had been shielded and protected from certain things that I should have been shielded and protected from. Right? I was ignorant in the right way. I was ignorant in the right way about these things. And God says we should be. We, should, we shouldn't even know about some of the stuff that the world does. We should be so separated from it to protect ourselves so that we're not tempted to engage in it. The places you go, the people you spend time with can be suggestive of things that you don't intend to portray. I think he's also telling us to avoid even the association with it, not necessarily because the association with it in and of itself is sinful, 
but because we are to deny ourselves the opportunity for impurity to avoid these major falls that would come from it, right? We're to, we're to avoid the small compromises to avoid the major falls. Right? God says, I don't even want you associated with this because I don't want it to be tempting for you. Right? I don't want you to have this knowledge or, or this um, comfortability with sin. Even if you're not engaging in it at the time, I don't want you to be around it because I don't want it to become a part of your life down the road. Steer clear from it. Have it not even be named amongst you. We should be okay with being thought of as odd with our convictions. Right? We should have parameters in place set up in our life that protects us and protects our family from being informed about the things of this world. Now, we have to be real careful that we don't become legalistic about how our family does things and how other families do things. Right? Because that's when it becomes legalism where we start saying, hey... God's commanded this, and therefore we have put this in place so that we don't fall into that, right? That may look different for each family. So we don't become judgmental towards others because we do this and your family does that, and that's not okay, right? What's not okay is to be associated with evil and to fall into evil. We put parameters in place to protect ourselves from getting there, right? And we should be okay with the fact that at times we may be thought of as odd, with our convictions, the things that we do do, the things we don't do, the things that we allow our kids to do, the things that we don't allow our kids to do, right? Because we are trying to fulfill what's called upon us here, and that's to not even have these sins named amongst us or our kids. It's improper for saints to be associated with it. Do you consider who and what are proper for a saint to associate with? Number two, do you consider what other people think of your reputation? Do you consider what other people think of your reputation. Some people will say this isn't important, this isn't important, that we shouldn't care what other people think about us. I would argue contrary to that. I would argue contrary to that because I believe the Bible tells us that the Gentiles should look at our conduct, should look at our behavior, make assessments about it, and ultimately be drawn to God because of it. Right? So we should absolutely care what other people think about us. We should be setting an example and a standard that points people to the hope that is in us. What, think, what people think we are doing matters. Our actions matter, but even the, the, the uh, associations that we have matter. So I put in my notes, our actions or lack thereof don't excuse our associations. Meaning you can't use the argument, hey, um, for lack of a better example, uh, maybe you've got an individual who is at this full-blown, uh, or your student, your kid is at like a full-blown drinking party, right? Your kid's like, well, I wasn't drinking. I wasn't doing those things, right? Well, great. Like, that, that's, that's important that you weren't. But there's an association that comes with that environment. There's an association that comes with being there that we're also wanting to try to avoid as saints, too, that it's improper, right? It's improper. It's not proper for a saint to be associated with evil. So you can't just say, well, I'm not doing it. That doesn't excuse the association. We're told to not have any hint of these things being a part of our life. Why? Because they're indicators of being a non-believer, as we're going to continue to see. They're indicators of being a non-believer. So while we may not be participating in this behavior or this act, simply being associated with it hurts our witness. It dims our light. Right? We're supposed to be pointing people to Jesus we're detracting from the gospel when we're associated and perceived to be tolerating this type of evil. Paul says, don't even be associated with it. I don't even want it named amongst you, right? It, should, it shouldn't even be a hint of this, you being involved in it. 
Avoid the association to avoid the accusation. Number two, be known for your gratitude instead of your humor. Be known for your gratitude instead of your humor. He says these things shouldn't be named amongst you in verse 3. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So in verse 3, he talks about what's proper versus improper for saints. Now he talks about what's in place and what's out of place for a saint. And it's out of place for us to be involved in this type of conversation, this type of joking, this type of humor, this type of entertainment. The truth here is that a believer should draw the attention of others to what God has done for them. A believer should draw the attention of others to what God has done for them. It's thanksgiving that should be on our lips, not the crude joking. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 talks about giving thanks in all situations. So two questions again to go along with this point, being known for your gratitude instead of your humor. Number one, do you consider what is out of place for a saint's entertainment? Do you consider what is out of place for a saint's entertainment? What we laugh about and what we weep about can say a lot about our spiritual maturity. Let me say that again. What we laugh about and what we weep about can say a lot about our spiritual maturity. Why, why, would, why would it be important if we're, if we're not engaged in this activity? Why would, why would Paul, why would the Holy Spirit through Paul be so concerned about us not even laughing or joking about it? Right? Like, why, why would that be important? Why, why would that matter? Surely there's bigger things that need to be addressed than what we might laugh at at work at the water, at the water cooler or what we may laugh at in a, in a teacher workroom or, or what we might laugh about at a lunch table. Why, why does it matter if we're laughing about this stuff as long as we're not engaged in it? I'll put in my notes, if you laugh often enough at evil, your moral perception may begin to blur and ultimately your moral conduct may be reduced. Let me say that again. If you laugh often enough at evil your moral perception may begin to blur and ultimately your moral conduct may be reduced. So what's that stage of progression there? We're laughing at evil and then when I try to pull myself back to reality when evil's happening around me, my moral perception is off. Right? Like it, it can be off because I've been laughing at this. Now it's blurred, and now even my personal conduct could be reduced because of the humor that I have found in sin. So, I mean, this translates to the TV shows, the, the movies, the music that we watch and listen to. Like, we're filling our minds with the toleration of sin if we're not careful. And then when sin's happening around us, our mind is conditioned to think that this is either funny or it's not that serious. And therefore, to even try to introduce God's judgment upon it, I think, we've, I think we've become guilty of what Lot was guilty of. Like, now's when you're really joking. Like, you're trying to talk about God being serious about this? We've been laughing about this for years, right? Like, this has been humorous and entertaining for us for years. Now you want to talk about God's judgment? Now that's entertaining. Now that's funny that you would try to introduce that piece, right? Like, we want to be, we want to be faithful to take sin seriously, because God takes it seriously. He talks about not inheriting the kingdom of Christ, uh, enduring wrath as a son of disobedience. 
We're not to be people who are thought of to have dirty minds, turning innocent things into something dirty. Dirty minds and dirty conversations are not in place with the life of a Christian. Do you consider what's out of place for a saint's entertainment? Do you consider the conversations and the jokes that you hear and you respond to, or do you separate from that? Do you say, hey, if y'all are going to continue to talk like that and be like that, like I'm going to distance myself. Maybe you don't have that conversation. Maybe you don't vocalize that, but your actions are now different because of it. Right? So I'm not saying that every time you hear a, a, a joke or an off-color comment that you have to stand up and say, hey, God's wrath is coming upon that. I therefore cannot associate with you moving forward. Right? Like I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to be weird about it. I'm just saying like if you're a student, sit somewhere different at the lunch table next time. Right? Don't keep going back to the same seat where you know the conversation is this, where the jokes are this. Right? Like, make a change. Be different moving forward. Say, I'm not going to associate with that. I'm not going to tolerate that. I'm not going to allow my moral perception to be impacted by sin being viewed less seriously than it should be. The world's laughs are typically focused on these topics, sexual desires and discontentment. Right? You, you watch any type of stand-up comedic routine that's not Christian-based, and, and even those that are Christian-based probably are going to tie in some level of grumbling and complaining and being discontent about things around us. We find it humorous, right? We can twist things to be funny that are, that are really not funny, according to God, right? He says to replace our discontentment with thanksgiving, being known as the funny person is rarely a good thing. Man, I, I've told you before I have this conversation with students all the time in my office. All the time when I'm addressing their behavior, typically the, the, the justification for what they did was, I was just trying to be funny. I was just trying to get people to laugh at me. Right? Even, our, even my own kids use this type of excuse. When, when one sibling comes crying, the other one is right behind saying, I was just joking. Right? I said those things or I did those things, but it's okay. I was just joking. I was just trying to be funny. Right? God is appealing to our humor here, and he's telling us there's a right way to joke and a right way to laugh and a wrong way to. Being known as the funny person is rarely a good thing because typically we're crossing boundaries. We're lowering standards in order to get the laugh. We need to consider our humor. We need to consider that it's a reflection of our heart. Do you consider how your humor can be a reflection of your heart? Is your humor driven by uh, a desire to have things that you don't have access to? Is it uh, uh, driven by a desire of discontentment where you're not satisfied with the things that God has given to you? Focusing on thanksgiving creates a deeper level of contentment within us. It attacks our desires for more or for something else. Let me say that again. Focusing on thanksgiving creates a deeper level of contentment within us. It attacks our desires for more or for something else. And our, our, I think our default is to complain and grumble and express discontentment and dissatisfaction. That's, that's just the norm. That's like the baseline standard for what you should expect. I sit in our teacher workroom a lot of times and it'll just work at the table and there's teachers all around me. I would say more often than not, the conversation is driven by things that are frustrating, things that they're not satisfied with or discontent about. But it's so common, I don't even think really twice about it. Right? Can you imagine being in a setting where the norm is to be giving praise and thanksgiving over the contentment level that you feel towards what God has given to you? That's not normal. 
you might expect that to get that at D group or C group, but I'll tell you, when I'm in settings like that where it's happening, I'm like, this is really abnormal. Like, we are talking a lot about the things that we're thankful for. Like, and that was probably prompted because somebody said, let's talk about the things that we're thankful for, right? You have to specify that that's going to be how we're going to handle this environment right now. Because if just left to ourselves, we typically talk about things that we're dissatisfied with or frustrated with or discontent about. He's saying, hey, replace your normal conversation with Thanksgiving. Like, that should be what people are hearing from you, not this other stuff. We can give thanks to God for his overflowing generosity in our extravagant spiritual blessings. Get this, whether or not we have a way to properly express these desires that are being mentioned here. Right? So, you might be sitting here saying, okay... This is fine, Adam, that we're not supposed to talk about this or joke about this because there is a right way to express these desires, right? He's going to talk about this at the end of chapter 5, the relationship between a husband and a wife. There's a right way to express these desires and impulses that we're created with. But some people don't have that outlet right now. Like we've got, we've got people that are single within our church. You don't have an outlet to rightly express your desires and impulses. doesn't mean that you can't be unbelievably thankful for the things that God has given to you, even if he has withheld this one thing from you, Right? For those that are in marital relationships, it may not be the ideal way that you thought this was going to be for you to express these desires and impulses, right? It may not happen as frequently as you have envisioned and dreamed. You can be grateful and thankful for what God has given to you, regardless of your situation, right? To be grateful and thankful in all circumstances, we're being told here. To not have this immorality and covetousness like we're not we're not justified to step out of our marriage relationship to go looking for something that we're lacking right we're not to to long for and desire things that are off limits to us we're to be grateful and thankful for what god has given to us and we can be be known for your gratitude instead of your humor number three don't bend on what god declares to be important don't bend on what god declares to be important. The truth here is that a believer should remain mindful of the long-term impact of their choices and decisions. A believer should remain mindful of the long-term impact of their choices and decisions. Do you identify the messaging of our culture in light of Scripture? Do you identify the messaging of our culture in light of Scripture? Here's where we stand as a culture today, and it's really where we've been all along we're not in a unique time in history. It just feels really hard for us, and it was really hard for people in Ephesus who were being told to live a certain way because it was, you know, the, the culture of sex was rampant at that time too, right? Culture wants us to think progressively about these desires. Culture wants us to think progressively about how to express these desires. Scripture would have us remain assured of what we are actually progressing to. See the difference there? Culture says, hey, let's progress in how we think about this topic. Let's progress in what we think is okay and not okay. Things that have been told to us that are not okay, that's outdated now. We need to be progressive in how we think about this topic. Scripture would say, hey, be mindful of where we're actually progressing to, that Jesus is coming back and judgment is coming and wrath is coming upon this type of behavior, and that has not changed and will not change. It's becoming far more acceptable, even within the church culture, for people to live contrary to this. Even within the last 10 years, I've seen a shift in what is tolerated amongst Christian families that I'm exposed to. Right? Divorce is rampant. 
premarital relationships are rampant. Um, the, the, the shift towards uh, acceptance of homosexual behavior, more and more and more rampant, more and more and more tolerant. And that's only going to continue to increase. And our culture would say, how dare you not be progressive about this? How dare you not shift your acceptance of this? And God's word is continuing to teach us the same thing today. And as I said a few weeks ago, if he tarries for another 2,000 years and we have churches on Mars, they will read this chapter again and say, this is the standard. This is the expectation. This is how we are to live. Don't shift on this. Don't bend on this. Don't let culture shift your thinking in that, oh, this should be okay now. The world will seek to lull us to sleep on the wise for living differently than what the Bible says. And we cannot shift. The goal of Scripture is to leave no workarounds here. We don't act this way. We don't even associate with this. We don't joke about it. God's will remains our purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you were doing, then you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Abstain from this type of behavior. Control your passions and impulses, right? That's what purity, we, we defined that at the beginning. Purity is controlling our passions and impulses through the filter of God's word and what he says is okay and what he says is not okay. And here's another message for our kids that are sitting in here. Don't think that you're rejecting mom and dad on this. When mom and dad give you guidance about how you're to live in relationship with, with a boy that you end up dating or a girl that you end up dating, don't think that you're turning your back on mom and dad. Don't think you're turning your back on your pastor or your youth pastor, your Sunday school, whoever it may be. You're not turning your back on them. You're not disregarding them. You're disregarding God, his word, and the Holy Spirit. We're just, we're just helping to bring that to your attention. Right? We're just telling you this is, what God, this is what God wants for us. This is what God desires for us. You're not, you're, not, you're not turning your back on, on human beings. This is God's message for us that we would live a certain way, that we would live with purity in the ways that we carry out our desires. We're to kill sin. We're to flee from it, not rename it, not redefine it, not try to manage it. If we think that God has changed his perspective about this, what else has he changed his perspective about? Like If we, if we can shift from God's teachings on this in his word, what else is up for grabs? What else can change for us, right? Does the gospel change? Does his love for us change? Like if this is no longer relevant, what else could potentially enter into that category? He says to be sure of a couple of things here. We're about to close. Ephesians, back in Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this. Like guaranteed, write it down. This is true. For you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or pure or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let the culture come at you with empty words and try to change your mind about this. Be assured of this, that these things, the wrath of God comes upon them, the sons of disobedience. Two things I wrote down there. Number one, true Christians don't continue in patterns of this behavior. And God's wrath versus his kingdom awaits this type of behavior. 
True Christians don't continue in patterns of this behavior, and it's God's wrath, not his kingdom, that awaits this type of behavior. We won't take the time to read this, these passages, but if you want to jot down 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Galatians 5, 19-21. Colossians 3, 5-6. Revelation 21, 7-8. Revelation 22, 14 through 15. These are all passages that list off the types of behaviors that don't translate to eternity with Christ. You can't live this way and end up there. But let's end with this thing. Because here's the thing. Christians aren't exempt from falling into this, right? And so I asked the question at the beginning, if I find myself guilty of any of this, does this mean that I've, I've not been a Christian this whole time and that I need to get saved today? No. I'd say the question you need to ask yourself is, do you repent or do you harden when you were found to be out of place? Remember, he says, this is, this is out of place for a believer. This is not proper for a saint. Do you repent or do you harden up? Do you get callous? Remember, we talked earlier in chapter 4. Now that we're believers, we look back on what we used to be. We used to have hardened hearts. We used to be calloused towards the things of God. Do you repent or do you harden when you were found to be out of place? Christians not only have a true gospel understanding, but they act in accordance to the gospel. Right? There's plenty of people out there that know the gospel, that have grown, been grown up, raised in church. They know the things of God, but they don't act according to it. Those are people that are not believers that need to get saved. But I don't think the goal here is to make every Christian who falls doubt their salvation. I think the goal here is to draw every true Christian to repentance and to avoid this type of behavior moving forward. That's the goal of this passage. It's not to make everybody doubt their salvation and question their salvation, although there may be a place for that. The goal is to draw us to repentance. The goal is to draw us to make changes so that we don't fall back into this again. Acts chapter 24 is an interesting passage because it's Paul talking to... uh, a king who has obtained a wife in immoral ways. Look what it says in Acts 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. Sounds like a Disney princess or a Disney villain, right? (laughs) Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so... This guy and his wife sit down, and Paul's preaching to him about the gospel, preaching to him about Jesus. But they've gotten married in a way that's not appropriate. As he reasoned, Paul, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, I'm sure these topics came up and all that, right? Uh, Righteousness, self-control, judgment. Look what it says. Felix was alarmed and said, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. He says... I don't want to hear you anymore about this. Like, if I want you again, I'll I'll tell you to come. But I'm not going to listen to that message. You're going to tell me to live a certain way, to be controlled, and to, to, to pursue righteousness. Previously in this chapter, look what verse 22 says. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He knows the gospel. He knows what it means to follow Jesus. He knows. He has an accurate knowledge of this. But when he sits under this teaching, he hardens. He says, I don't want to live that way. I don't, want to, I don't want to repent. I don't want to submit to the things of Jesus. I want to do my own thing. The question I would ask for you is, 
do you repent or harden? Because there's the thing, the church can't be a place where sin is tolerated, but it is a place where healing and restoration occurs when repentance has taken place. Right? It's a place where healing and restoration takes place. He wouldn't be talking about these things in Ephesians 5 if it wasn't possible for a Christian to fall into these things. What's not possible is for a Christian to remain in these things. If a Christian, if a person professing to be a Christian hardens themselves and refuses to repent, then what he tells us here is true. There is no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God for that person. The wrath of God comes upon that person because they are truly a son of disobedience. The identity truths for us to remember this morning. Number one, every Christian is to maintain proper separation from immorality in both action and conversation. Every Christian is to maintain proper separation from immorality in both action and conversation. Don't even be associated with it. Number two, every Christian is to remain thankful by focusing on what God has given versus what he has not. And our application for us today is, is your current state of purity, your associations and your actions, in line with what is proper for one who is destined to inherit God's kingdom and escape his wrath? It's a question for all of us today. Is your current state of purity, the things that you associate with, the things that you do, Are those things in line with what is proper for one who is destined to inherit God's kingdom and escape his wrath? This type of sin shouldn't be mentioned amongst us, and it shouldn't even be mentioned by us. I'll close with this verse from Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talks far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you. And God, sometimes when we read your expectations and standards like this, If we're not careful, we feel like it's impossible to live up to what you're asking, particularly in light of the friends and the associations that we currently have. But God, we're we're mindful today that you've given us the supernatural power and ability to live pure. You've given us your Holy Spirit who brings about conviction when we need it. And God, I pray that if we're convicted this morning about particular actions or maybe even particular associations that we would be willing to repent versus hardening. God, help us to remember that your judgment is coming, that you do have standards of holiness that you will hold people to. God, we're ultimately thankful that Jesus has fulfilled those standards for us. But as your children, as your saints, we realize that we are called to live differently now that we have been made those things. And God, I pray that you'd give us a resolve to not associate with evil, to not even have it named amongst us. God, help us to be mindful as we leave today. The people we hang out with, the places that we go, the things that we choose to associate with, they say something about us. 
Help us to care what it says about us. Lord, help us to realize that uh, we are a, we are a, um, a, a billboard in, in ways for you. Uh, that we're to point people to you. That we're to cause people to reflect upon you. And so the ways that we talk should be such that we are giving thanks to you. Not, not showing people how discontent we are. Not joking about things that we wish weren't off limits to us. We're to, we're to profess our submission to you and to do so with great thanksgiving. And God, I pray that we'd leave today mindful of that. That we'd be willing to break off associations if we need to so that we can fulfill what's being asked of us here. God, give us to resolve to repent where we need to, not to doubt our salvation today unless that's what you would desire because there, there, there really is a, a need for us to be saved. But God, I pray that we would instead see that, hey, this isn't how Christians live and I'm a Christian. So I need to live differently than this. I need, to, I need to get back in line. I've been improper and I've been out of place. God, if that's needed, I pray that you'd draw us to that. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who, who's been the ultimate sacrifice so that we can even approach you about repentance and forgiveness. Because if we're convicted today, God, we come broken and we come stained and in need of cleansing from you and we can't offer good works for you to cleanse us with. So God, we, we thank you that we could even come to you this morning to repent and to ask for forgiveness, knowing that Jesus makes that possible. So we praise you and give you thanks for that today too. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.